Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. We're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today, let's explore a very critical element of our faith and the way forward for us as we seek to try to live as Christians in 21st century society. The world, word worldview has become a buzzword, and it can easily be reduced to a cliché. But worldview is something that is very important for us to consider. What is a worldview? Why is it important? And why is it that we ought to seek after a biblical worldview? A worldview, you might imagine, is a worldview, a way of looking at the world. It comes from the German Weltanschung. And in general, we use German to try to make things sound fancy, uh, perhaps fancier than they are. But it's really a, f a personal philosophy. It's a set of beliefs and assumptions about what life's about and how the world works. But it doesn't stay at an individual level. We're social creatures. Uh, we don't exist in a vacuum. We don't come to and understand the world independently of everybody else. Instead, we tend to share viewpoints with a group of people around us, either as a tribe, a subculture, or a culture. And therefore, we can speak of cultural worldviews. Uh, other terms that might be used are meta-narratives, cultural narratives, and story. Worldview is universal, but what's inside of it varies. It's very important for us to recognize that everybody has some sort of worldview. I do, you do, and everybody you've ever known does. Now, what it looks like, what beliefs and assumptions guide it, varies considerably. So we do well to consider why it's important for us to explore and consider worldview. And to do that, we're going to look at a couple ways that the Bible talks about something akin to worldview. Uh, the Bible doesn't come out and talk about it exactly. But we have a couple illustrations from Jesus and Paul that get to the same concept. As Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount, he declares in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, Everyone who then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Jesus here uses the metaphor of house construction on a foundation. If you hear and do what he says, you're building on the rock. If you hear and don't do what he says, you're building on sand. And pro productive metaphor to explore further. But for our purposes today, in our conversation, we see that the concern that Jesus has is about that foundation, on that which a person would build their house. The idea is that from the foundation, everything else is going to follow. No matter what you build on the foundation, the foundation's not secure. That, that structure is not secure. And that's the way it is with worldview. Because our worldview establishes the fundamental foundational beliefs and assumptions that we use to process the mounds of data that are always coming at us. We're constantly being bombarded with information. And we are incapable of just trying to understand everything anew. And so we have uh, ways of understanding the world that we take data and we fit it into, and we fit it into various boxes. And normally the only time we challenge those boxes is when we've got enough pieces of data that no longer fit the box in which we've put it. Um, 
And so that's what Jesus is saying. If you, there's a way of looking at how what he says and doing them, that, that if you hear them truly and do them, that you're putting the practice in your life, that you have arranged your life so that it's founded on Jesus and his principles. And if you hear his words but do something else, you, you're, you're building on another foundation and going to have a different result when the rains come, when the difficulties of life arise. Another such metaphor is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where the Apostle Paul is also using a construction metaphor. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul also is talking about foundations and buildings. And to Paul, Jesus is the foundation. So as Christians, we should recognize that. Upon that foundation, each Christian is going to build a life of faith with various types of materials. And again, a lot to be explored with Paul's use of this metaphor here. But for our purposes that we can see that there is this idea that we have a foundation and that we build upon it and that it's going to endure. It's going to have to be tested. And we pray that it may endure the trial. So the scriptures do show us that we have ways of looking at the world. And the way in which we look at the world strongly influences our thoughts and feelings and behaviors. Because... To hear Jesus' words and do them is to demonstrate that one has fully absorbed it and is, is patterning one's life after it. Building life of faith on top of Jesus is, again, showing that. You're not building on yourself. You're not building on culture or society if you're doing that. If you hear what Jesus says, but you build elsewhere, you're building on culture, family, whatever you've heard, it's going to turn out very differently. And so if we want to understand people's thoughts and behaviors, we need to understand how they look at things and what they privilege in their worldview. And this is because the issue is rarely the issue. What do we mean by that? What are we talking about? Well, how many times have you been in a discussion with somebody where, in which it was very clear that the disagreements were far more fundamental than matters of data or fact? Uh, we can think about... Uh, Politics is a very easy, I know it's very contentious, I'm sorry, but it's a very easy example where it's very clear that a lot of times uh, people from more liberal political persuasions uh, can have conversations with people of, of more conservative political uh, persuasions. And even if they are good-hearted people and assume the best of intentions uh, coming from the other, a lot of times they'll be talking about something and they're going to talk over each other. They're, they're not going to understand each other because they're coming from very different points of view. And the issue is not whatever issue they're talking about. It's the fact that each of them has built a worldview, built a political ideology based on certain assumptions, and they don't agree in those assumptions. And as long as they keep arguing 
arguing without actually getting to those assumptions and, and, and reasoning out those assumptions, there can be no way to come to any kind of agreement. And of course, this is also true with religious discussions. Uh, I can attest personally that I have had religious discussions with uh, people of various uh, denominational persuasions in which we would end up quoting the same exact scripture. And we both believe that uh, that particular scripture uh, justified our specific position, even though our positions were at odds. And what it demonstrates is that the disagreements that we have are not basic in terms of easily solved. Uh, we can't just wave a wand and fix them. That, in fact, the disagreements are far more profound than we'd like to admit because they go down to these level of assumptions and beliefs. It comes down to worldview. Now, whatever catalyzing issue that's led to a disagreement or conversation is rarely the actual issue, but it's pointing to that more fundamental, basic operating assumption that is really the heart of the matter. And this is why we come back to worldview. In these examples, two people have constructed their houses on different foundations, or they've used a very different building pattern in their houses. And because of that, meeting of the mind will be difficult, if not impossible. And this is why worldview is so important. It informs our perspective. And since it informs our perspective, it's important for our own thought and behavior processes, as well as how we interact with others. So how do we get to this point? What, what, what informs our worldview? Now, a lot of people would like to believe that they're really fully free thinkers. They've come to the understanding of the universe based on their skills and study and reasoning. And yet, just as everybody who tends to be nonconformist tend to nonconform in a conformed way, uh, everybody's worldview has been shaped by their environment. Even if we think we're running away from it, it's because of what it is we're running away from that we have certain ideas. It's just the way things are. It's the way that, that things have been since man has been around. And it's good for us to consider these different sources that shape our worldview so we get an idea of why it is people believe what they believe. The first and most fundamental shaper of worldview is the family. When we are born, uh, we first interact with the, the world. We're interacting with and our parents. Our thought processes and values are first shaped by what we are taught by our parents and family members, if not in words, certainly in deed. Even if we turn aside from that to some degree or another as we get older, we are continually profoundly shaped by our raising and our reactions to it. We think about all the people that we can think of, including ourselves. If we had a generally positive childhood, uh, that has shaped us for the better, we can see various ways in which that shaped us. If we, if, if we had a much worse experience, uh, those traumas, those difficulties have shaped us and shaped the way we look at things as well. Uh, it's, it's just hard to get around that. But families, uh, even where, where did family get their worldview? Well, uh, families don't exist in isolation. They're part of an extended family. And we would call that perhaps some sort of tribe or related or closely associated people, some sort of community. And that's because the family members have been shaped by the worldview and values of that tribe or community and live according to its customs. And so the tribe and community shapes the viewpoint and attitude and, and ideology of each successive generation. And even then, a tribe or community would also exist within a greater culture or society. 
Now, this may be a coherent nation state like the United States or England or something, or United Kingdom or something of the sort. Uh, or it may reflect a subnational ethic or geographical culture or society. We could talk about Southern California culture. We could talk about uh, Southeastern culture. We could talk about uh, other various uh, subunits. Since each group has to have some sort of ideology in order to cohere, uh, the ideology informs a worldview of the tribe and the family and the individual as well. So that we have multiple layers here. And it also defines relationships to other people and thus other viewpoints. Who are the us? Who are the them? Who are the ones allied with us? Who are the other? Uh, which values do we enshrine as our own? Which values do we enshrine as the other? All of these questions end up getting answered through the cultural or societal lens. And it's the fact that these communities and societies in ha maintain institutions that shape worldview, that allows them to have such worldviews and, and for these worldviews to develop. Religion and its teachings regarding morals and ethics would be one such institution. Uh, any kind of education, educational institutions would be in included, and educational philosophies. Uh, if a community has a various ritual, uh, you can think of America, the 4th of July. Uh, you can think uh, of certain cultures, certain uh, coming-of-age rituals. Uh, these are, uh, and these inform worldview as well. And in all of these prevailing thought views and philosophies, uh, these are dictating worldview. And this is important. Very few people think about how these things affect how they look at things. Even if they're not aware of their influence, these in, they are absolutely uh, influencing them. That all of us are shaped by our raising, by our tribal affiliations and community affiliations, by education, by whatever religion we we adhere to. Uh, and all of these uh, are absolutely value important. That's why in Colossians two eight, Paul points out that we should not be deceived and to be led astray by worldly philosophy and of vain precepts and reasonings coming from concerns about the elemental spirits of the world. Now all of this sounds well and good. Where's the rooting of it? Well, we can see all of this in Israel. We should notice that Israel is very much defined by families. Uh, you think about uh, one of the prevailing things we see throughout the Old Testament is genealogies. This person is a son, a father, it had this, a father of this person, father of this person, father of this person, and this goes on and on and on and on. Uh, the Shema, the great declaration uh, that God provides in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And he goes on and on. Notice that he declares what it is, and that these rules are to be communicated to children, that they need to be constantly communicated so that they may shape the way that the children view reality. We also have clan and tribe association of great importance. It defined land allotment and standing within the nation. So Judges 6 and verse 15, uh, Gideon finds it very strange that he's being called because he is the least in his family, and his family and his clan is the least in Manasseh, one of the tribes of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see uh, Saul getting called out by the tribe of Benjamin, by the by the clan, and then by his family, and then him. In 2 Samuel 20, 1 and 2, 
when Sheba tries to foment disagreement regarding David, he tells Israel, to your tents, O Israel, uh, that each tribe will go back to its own attempt at, at, at ideology. And there's other times in Judges and other places where you can see intra-tribal conflict um, among the various tribes of Israel and a kind of tribal identity where even at times they would define other Israelite tribes as the other. And yet as Israel, as a whole, they have developed a theology in a nation-state that is sharply defined against those around them. In fact, more sharply defined than any other nation in their midst. Uh, they incurred divine wrath because they, in fact, did not maintain that sharp distinction, uh, but conformed to local customs. We see that you know, Yahweh was going to be their God and that they would serve Yahweh only. And in 2 Kings 17, we see that both Israel and Judah would go into uh, exile because they did not serve Yahweh alone and they worshipped and served idols, the gods of the nations around them. And in fact, we're, we're told that they're to maintain rituals that define the, con the community and define the community in terms of continuity with the past, uh, specifically in God's great act of salvation. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 and 27, as the Passover is being instituted, they're still in Egypt. Uh, the text reads, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so the idea there was that by constantly re having the Passover, constantly reenacting that event. There is continuity. Uh, if future Israelite generations will have connection with the past, will recognize Yahweh as their rescuer and deliverer. And this is designed with competent instruction in, in the law to continue to keep Israel in the straight and narrow to follow God, to maintain the worldview, to recognize who Yahweh is, who they are, and what they were supposed to do. We can, of course, find plenty of parallels in the New Covenant. And say what you will about Israel, definitely did not do it during the First uh, Temple period very well. And of all the failings of Second Temple Judaism, uh, by that time they had fully embraced their story. That, to the point where, in Acts 7 and Acts 13, when Stephen and Paul attempt to tell the story of Jesus in a way. They do so by rehearsing the history of Israel. They define themselves by that story and their relationship with their God in framing that whatever they need to say according to that story and the details within it. That that's how they even try to talk to each other is in ways that show continuity with the worldview as well as the story that they had all known about and to see perhaps the things that they may have not expected that, that God was up to. And so we can see here in Israel a great example of how all of these different influences were to work together. How family and clan and tribe and nation state were all to work together to, to maintain a worldview that God would have them to maintain. But unfortunately, seeing how since family, clan, tribe, and nation in various ways did not uphold that, did not teach the way they should, did not practice the way they should, uh, instead conformed to other nations and acted like every other engineer Eastern nation, they 
received punishment because they did not maintain their distinctiveness. They just went along and conformed with everybody around them was doing. And that gets us to the core of our concern. Look, everybody has a worldview. Our worldview is shaped by our raising environment, and our worldview dictates how we're going to think, feel, and act. I've been profoundly shaped by the influences I've received from my family, my tribe, and my society, as have you, and as has everybody else. So, can we serve Christ while maintaining that worldview? Not now, not ever. Because we're building on sand. Uh, what's happened with cultural Christianity, that view of Christianity that, that, that ties it directly to the nation-state and its welfare? It's a dying relic. Uh, it, it, it has lost so much of its power over the past century and will have a, and, and is almost a completely spent force. Some of these things may come from society. It may come from tribe and society. It may come from every source of worldview influence. But there are corrosive and ungodly influences that come to bear upon each and every one of us very much like what Israel experienced. Think about this. The Israelites in the days of Jesus. If anybody had to, if you could expect anybody to have about as much of a biblical worldview, it would be these Second Temple Jews waiting for the return of, the, of, of God and the Messiah and the, and the release from oppression. And yet... What does Jesus have to do? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You must likewise repent. In Acts 17, repent. They had to change their thinking. Even they had elements of their worldview that were not in alignment with God, what God was doing. And that we do need to recognize that worldview formation is the consequence of repentance. Repentance is not mere sorrow for sin. The Greek word metanoeo means to change one's mind for the better. And so repentance is in a very real way when we no longer conform to the world but are transformed in Christ by the renewing of our minds in Romans 12 and verse 2. It is a means by which we hear and do the words of Jesus, where we change in our lives the things that we have heard from family and culture and society that are not consistent with what Jesus has said. We instead heed what Jesus says and do what Jesus says to do. That is repentance in action. Building our lives on the rock is repentance in action. And so this is very crucial. It does not matter from whence we've come. All of us must participate in this repentance and to do so continually. Whether we were, quote-unquote, raised in the church, whether we're converts, uh, no matter what, we've got to continually go through this repentance process. Because it's only in repentance where we re-examine those fundamental assumptions and beliefs and practices uh, in and do so in light of what God has revealed to us in Christ and in the Word. And we can see, well, even though this is very cherished, this isn't what God has said. In fact, it's antithetical to what God has said. And so we're given that choice, that we can continue to hold on to that belief. And you know how it's a lot easier that way, perhaps, in our thinking. But in so doing, we're building on the sand. Or we go through the painful work of changing and to coming to terms and grips with the fact that that particular cherished assumption is wrong so that we can better align ourselves to, to Jesus and to hear and do what he says. That's the hard work of repentance. If we do that, though, and we continue to do that, we will be able to develop a more biblical worldview because more and more of our assumptions and beliefs are being informed by what Jesus has made known to us. 
and they're not compromised by the pollutants that come from worldly sources of worldview. And in a very real way, this is, to use a, a metaphor used a bit these days, the battleground for hearts and minds. Because the spiritual force of darkness that Paul warns us about in Ephesians 6.12, against whom are, is our contest, they're very effective at using these worldly sources of influence to persuade and deceive people, to keep or to develop these assumptions and ideas that are contrary to the gospel of Christ, to keep them seeking worldly pleasure, to keep them hindered from coming to Jesus, and to weaken their resolve and standing of Christians themselves and their beliefs. This is part of how that roaring lion Satan is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He's trying to tempt and deceive us. If he can get people to deny the power of the word of God and turn away from him, well, it's well and good for him. If he can get Christians to compromise the word of God, profess Jesus, but have ideas very little different from the world, well, good for him. And if he can get faithful Christians to accept a bit of worldly wisdom here and there to dilute their influence, well, well and good for him. Uh, but in all of those cases, it's not good for upholding the faith that God has delivered to us in Jesus. And that is why developing and maintaining a biblical worldview is a constant struggle. It's something that we can't just decide, ah, I've gotten there, I now have a biblical worldview. Because even at the point, if we could even say we've gotten there, uh, which itself is highly questionable, even if we re re have a mature viewpoint where we, on the whole, are more informed by what God has revealed in Christ than, than other sources. Even then, we're constantly being tempted to return back and to, to accept a little bit of worldly wisdom here and there. And so we must always be on guard and always striving toward that repentance to continue it and to uh, go deeper in repentance. And that is why, above all things, as Christians, we must prove willing to challenge our fundamental assumptions and beliefs that dictate our lives according to what God has revealed in Christ and the Word so that we can develop this biblical worldview. And when we do that, we can then better uh, serve our children by helping shape their worldview to the same end. And this is really what Paul is all about in Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 10, that we are rooted and builded in Jesus and are established in our faith in Him. We need to be very clear about this. Coming to church every Sunday does not mean that you've developed the biblical worldview. Raising your children in the church, having them participate in Bible class, even if you can get them to learn all sorts of Bible passages and trivia, does not mean they have developed a biblical worldview. Sadly, even statistically, a good number of Christians who sit in pews don't have a biblical worldview. They think they're Christians, they profess confidence in Jesus, but their thought processes are infected with the modern American worldview. And if their American values collide with what the gospel teaches, then Americanism will most often win out. And we see this sadly too often. Many affirm the value of faith and family. But if family turns aside, either they do too, or they want to compromise the faith against what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 10, 35-37. Many say they want to raise their children in the Lord, but... Any other activity or discipline, sports, secular education, is privileged over biblical instruction and assembling with the saints. Against Hebrews 10.25. Many say they'll follow Jesus to the death. But what will happen as Christianity is further marginalized in our society, and it becomes far more difficult to be both a faithful Christian and to pursue the American dream? Will they stand firm? And we're seeing this so often in the denomination world, and even among people who profess to be members of Churches of Christ. They want to uphold the apostolic faith, they say. But when culture presses for such people to commend what God has condemned as sin, they prove more willing to create exceptions and to compromise the faith rather than to uphold what God has revealed in Christ. And so they 
fall prey to the doctrines of demons. They have they bring in teachers that teach have, have itching ears and bring in the teachers that tell them the things they want to tell them. All against what what Paul warns Timothy about in First Timothy four and Second Timothy four. Now let's be honest, the pressures are very strong. That is why developing a biblical worldview is so crucial. Because how are we going to know where we should ground ourselves in the gospel so that we can uphold the apostolic faith without diluting or compromising it with postmodern Western and American culture? It's a very difficult question because if we accept a bit of a tradition either in the church or in culture and believe that's gospel, we will defend it like gospel even and find ourselves on the wrong side of the cross. How can we maintain a sort of prophetic stance? Not that we are prophets, but to maintain that stance where we can point out where family, tribe, and culture have gone astray from the gospel of Christ. If we are fully saturated in culture, if we're fully saturated in its mechanisms, we, we, we lose that ability to step back and to point out the challenges. How can we share and communicate the faith so the next generation is prepared to uphold it despite the growing storm? If there's an answer to all these... And many other questions. It demands that we seek a more biblical worldview to make sure that our ideas are shaped less by family, tribe, and culture and more by what God has revealed in Christ. So everybody has a worldview or a story, and there's a lot of forces out there that shape that worldview. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, we're in the spiritual war and we're to stand firm against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. To do that, we need to repent and strive to develop this biblical worldview, because as we think, so we will do. If our basic beliefs and assumptions are are profoundly shaped by what God has revealed to us, then our feelings and our actions will follow. Our conscience will be properly trained. If uh, the way we look at things is more informed by the world, then we will be much more likely to compromise and dilute what God has revealed and to find ways of, of, of just living the life that we'd want to live anyway. We ultimately will make a God out of ourselves or out of our idea, the ideology of our culture. And that will not be able to save us. So we must participate in the story of the people of God and to identify with them more than those in the world. And thus may we seek to see the world as God would have us to see it. To live as God would have us to live. So that we may live to his glory and honor and to obtain the resurrection in his son Jesus. We're so glad that you've joined us. And I can encourage you that this is the beginning beginning of a couple lesson series where we're going to continue to talk in greater detail about some of these philosophies and some of the ideas that are, are coming out of the worldviews of the world and uh, how we can be rooted in Christ and what we need to be looking out for. And so we encourage you to, to come back and consider uh, some of those discussions. Maybe you'd like to hear some other discussions we've had about the scriptures and about faith in Christ. Maybe you'd like to talk about uh, what you've heard here. Uh, maybe you have a prayer request or like a Bible correspondence course. Maybe you'd just like to learn more about us and, and where you can meet with us. Uh, please check us out online at VenturChurchOfChrist.org or also on social media. And you feel free to contact me as well at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovita.com. Well, again, thank you. Have a great day.